All right, let's hear God's word. Ephesians 4, uh, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual uh, working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Amen. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come tonight to uh, learn of your mighty works that you have done through your church, and particularly through this particular father in the faith and his works on behalf of your church. And we pray, Father, that this would be a time, as the man himself would have despised the idea that he would be venerated, that this would not be a time of venerating a man, but uh, of uh, adoring the Holy Spirit who worked through uh, a man and was uh, able to give us great gifts through the body of work that has come to us uh, even in this day. And so, Father, that all things would be done unto edification. We pray that your spirit would be present, that you would help us to uh, uh, give glory to God for the way that he has worked, you have worked in history, and that we would never forget the lessons that ought never be forgotten uh, through what you have done in your marvelous providence. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, so as we start this sort of study, and it's meant to be informal, mostly a kind of roundtable kind of discussion, at least that's the way it will be mostly starting next week. Uh, there'll be good discussion points, I think, tonight. But what I wanted to do is mostly introduce Calvin the man, the history of the Reformation in his time, and the context in which the institutes come about. Now, you know, sometimes people might look at us strange, like, why are you studying a man uh, that was uh, from the 16th century? Why are you holding him in high esteem? Why not just open up your Bible and learn from the Bible? Uh, why are you reading his body of work here, this, the Institutes? Um, why would we do these things? What would you say to that? Say, well, the Bible is sufficient, so why do we, why do we go and look at Calvin? Okay. Ask the same question and answer it, but yeah, the Bible is supreme and that's where we should live um, so little of us have the understanding of even what we're reading and so god gives even as you just read gives mm. to help us in our understanding the help us of our joy not lords over our conscience and so okay is a secondary source just like our confession or creeds okay standards very good okay uh, any other thoughts on that i think that's absolutely right um when the context of the passage, actually, uh, and there's several things underlined here, what would we do, actually, if we despised uh, the works of men like Calvin? Yeah, because you see here, right, he gave gifts unto men. And wh what are those gifts in the text? Some pastors and teachers, right? And so these are the gifts God gives to men. And what's the purpose here, like in verse 12? perfecting of the saints, the edifying of the body of Christ. 
And this is also going to be very important when we consider Calvin, right? Unto the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, that we no more be children to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Now, in Calvin's context, how does that particularly apply historically? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, all, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, but especially the papacy, um, you know, and that's what we see here, the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And you're going to see some of that in his history as he deals with uh, Cardinal uh, Sadaletto in particular, who's trying to grab Geneva back for the, the papacy. Um, but yeah, these are all good thoughts here. Um, you know, we don't come today to, to extol a man, but to praise Christ, who gave this gift to his church in a very tenuous time. And when the Reformation was in danger of really falling apart and anarchy and schism could have resulted, God really raised, I think you're going to see this, raised Calvin to sort of fill the gap when the papacy was removed. Oh, now what, right? Now what does the church do? There was a stabilizing influence of the Roman Catholic Church. What do we believe? What, how is the church to function? And that really, Calvin um, really fills the gap there in marvelous ways. Okay, so then you can ask the question. Um, I'm going to get to the question as Presbyterians why we should study Calvin and his institutes. Um, do you have any particular reasons why you want to study the institutes yourself? I've never gone through it. Okay, yeah, a lot of people haven't gone through them. Very good. Um, any other reasons? Anything particular in Calvin's writings? Calvin distinctly puts the scripture mm. and what scripture teaches into words we can all understand, find in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. That's just explaining yeah. why something is what it does. Yeah. And I think you hit on something very important. You know, a lot of people are intimidated by the Institutes, but it's actually a very easy thing to read. Um, and uh, you hit on his style, which is lucid brevity, right? He says a lot in a very short amount of space and it's very meaningful and actually easy to understand, but it takes you a while to just sort of digest, digest it. it, right? You don't just uh, swallow it quickly. You do have to digest it. Okay. Um, what are some reasons as Presbyterians, though, specifically, we ought to study Calvin and his institutes? I think everybody here is pretty much I know. <laughs> Doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. Okay, yeah, very important. Uh, he was certainly key in developing out and uh, the doctrines of grace. Um, a lot of church government. Okay, yeah. Ecclesiastical powers and um, doctrines on like the magistrates. Yeah, he is very comprehensive, and I think that's one of the reasons why we'll see. You know, this was meant to be a compendium almost of the Christian religion, right? Um, and he wasn't content to stop with justification. He wanted to discover everything that God had to say um, for his people. And I think that makes it. I was curious about what uh, might be like, like his main contribution, because everyone says the doctrines of grace. But when you go through those sections, he leans so heavily on Augustine. Mm. Um, it's almost all Augustine being repeated. Mm. So I, I'm curious through the study to see um, you know, what, what he brought, like Luther with the justification, what was Calvin's, um, you know, kind of unique thing. Not that there's really anything unique to a man. It's right. uncovering what is in the scripture, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'll be that'll be good as we especially go through those sections. Um, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, to your point, um, he wasn't really innovating anything, Um he is, first of all, concerned about the scripture, and he did lean heavily on the church fathers in a lot of ways uh, where they were um, scriptural. So, yeah, very good point. But I had a, a few areas here where, you know, Presbyterians especially, and I don't know if you can read any of this on Zoom, uh, and it might even be hard on our television here. Um, as Presbyterians, his influence on John Knox, who is the father of Scottish Presbyterianism, and that's Knox over there. Um, you know, the Scottish Reformation traces its principles to Calvin's Geneva in many ways. Um, and while Luther was concerned with justification, recovering the gospel, Calvin went further. And he saw Reformation was needed in worship and beyond. 
even to how society must be transformed. And this really affected Knox. And I have a quote here, uh, maybe hard to read, but I'll read it. Uh, when he arrived in Geneva, when it was under Calvin's influence, he said that it was, quote, the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostles. In other places, I confess Christ to be truly preached, but manners and religion so sincerely reformed, I have not yet seen in any other place. And so now that really then, um, and I'll send this PowerPoint to you all uh, later, uh, so that you don't need to take notes if you don't want to, but um, that really affects Scotland, obviously. You know, Knox is heavily impressed by what he sees here in Geneva. And then you see the thorough reformation in Scotland, obviously it sees Geneva as its blueprint. Um, this is something our brother mentioned. Calvin implemented Presbyterian church government in Geneva, his ecclesiastical ordinances, which is a form of presbyterial government. And it's very interesting that Knox introduces the first book of discipline in Scotland the year after he leaves Geneva. And so clearly that was all um, heavily influenced by um, Calvin. There's the Reformation wall in Geneva. You don't usually get a sense of the scale. So I thought this was neat to see those, uh, those folks in front of it to see just how big that is. And he's got Farrell there, Calvin, Beza, and Knox. Uh, he had a tremendous influence on the Church of England and so on Puritanism as a whole. Many English bishops thought very highly of Calvin and his doctrine, uh, ecclesiology aside. Um, it's actually very interesting. In the 18th century, when the English church was combating Arminianism, uh, Top Lady uh, reminded the church how influential Calvin was in the English Reformation. Um, thank you. Um, and here's a wonderful quote. Um, uh, it appeared by the subsequent revisal and reformation of that liturgy that King Edward, his council, and Archbishop Cranmer were entirely of Calvin's mind. Doubtless these good and great men reformed the first liturgy more from a conviction of the force of Calvin's arguments than uh, from a principle of mere deference to Calvin's authority. And so you can see that uh, even in the 18th century, his uh, influence was still felt. And we've talked about this already on our Dutch reformed brethren. Uh, Calvin is believed to have had direct influence on the Belgic confession uh, Synod of Dort, of course, indebted to the Institutes. And I thought this was so fascinating to recognize how deeply the Dutch were affected by Calvin. Look at what Arminius has to say. And who's Arminius, of course? Yeah. Heretic. Yeah, but <laughs> in one word, yes. Um, sort of the father of Arminianism. So very anti the doctrines of grace. Next to the study of the scriptures, which I earnestly inculcate, I exhort my pupils to peruse Calvin's commentaries, which I extol in loftier terms than Helmick himself, where I affirm that he excels beyond comparison in the interpretation of scripture, and that his commentaries ought to be more highly valued than all that is handed down to us by the library of the fathers, so that I acknowledge him to have possessed above most others, or rather above all other men, what may be called an eminent spirit of prophecy. His institutes ought to be studied after the Heidelberg Catechism, as containing a fuller explanation, but with discrimination like the writings of all men. And so here you can consider the man who you might consider his arch nemesis. Oh, I lost uh, screen sharing. That's weird. Um, so yeah, you might consider him, right, to be the polar opposite, but he commends Calvin to you. Um, I'm not sure why I lost my display there. There you go. Am I still sharing my screen over there? I don't see it. Okay, let me get it back there. Is that better? I can see clearly now. <laughs> That's Jonathan. <laughs> Make sure it's recognized. Okay, it's still recording. Okay, hopefully it's actually recording the screen. Um, okay, so that's Arminius. Um, Calvin influenced our metrical psalmody, of course. The Genevan Psalter uh, he helped produce and really spearheaded uh, shaped the form of psalmody in the Reformed churches. We sing in meter. And that's because Calvin wanted the psalms to be sung in the language of the people and in their own idiom. And so rather than chanting the psalms, we sing them in meter because of Calvin's work here. Um, I'm not sure that the Genevan was the first metrical Psalter. I think there was a parallel effort in England, but he certainly made the idea popular at the Genevan. And of course, his commentaries on most of the Bible. 
Um, and this is, comes back to what we were talking about before, which is that there's a huge vacuum left when the magisterium is removed, right? What does the scripture teach? What does the, the, the Bible teach? And so he, uh, he produced commentaries on almost all the scriptures. Um, and what was really wonderful about the Institutes then, as we think of it, is it's the product of scripture itself and not of speculation. I shared this on our Slack today, but this is how Calvin you know, thought that um, let us remember that on the whole subject of religion, one rule of modesty and soberness is to be observed. And it is this, in obscure matters, not to speak or think or even long to know more than the word of God has delivered. A second rule is that in reading the scriptures, we should constantly direct our inquiries and meditations to those things which tend to edification, not indulge in curiosity or in studying things of no use. And so he redirects the people uh, of God that, you know, you know, in medieval scholastic, not the scholasticism is bad necessarily, but medieval scholasticism was full of speculation, right? And so um, this is where Calvin said, no, what the people of God need are the useful things that come out of the scripture. And we ought not speculate and obsess on things that the word of God doesn't really clearly speak to. And I think that's a very helpful way to, uh, to see that. All right. Um, then there is the Institutes itself, and it really did set the standard for systematic theology. Um, and it's really hard to overstate the influence of the Institutes uh, on the Reformed churches. This is what William Cunningham on the next slide has to say uh, about um, the Institutes. It had the same place in theology as Newton's Principia does in science. Um, the Institutes is the most important work in the history of theological science that which is more than any other creditable to its author and has exerted directly or indirectly the greatest and most beneficial influence upon the opinions of intelligent men on theological subjects. It may be said to occupy in the science of theology the place which it requires uh, both the Novum Organum of Bacon and the Principia of Newton to fill up in physical science. At once conveying, though not in formal didactic precepts and rules, the finest idea of the way and manner in which the truths of God's word ought to be classified and systematized, and at the same time, actually classifying and systematizing them in a way that has, and this is, I think, very key, has not yet received any very material or essential improvement. There really hasn't been an improvement upon the Institutes in terms of uh, its essence. Um, you know, you're going to find different systematics might have an emphasis here, there, or the other place, but as far as a body or compendium of work, this really hasn't been excelled in any meaningful way, I don't think. And that's it, and it's such a Catholic small c. Um, oh, yeah, no. um, uh, uh, um, work that you know, if you say even if you just posted, I just thought about posting this study. If you had posted that you're going to study something maybe on on Samuel Rutherford or something like that, yeah, you're going to get people who are interested, but not the broad scope of folks because Calvin really does speak to the entirety of the Protestant really tradition. All right. I wanted to give a biographical sketch of him because I think that's important to figure out where he is in um, terms of history. So 1509, he's born in Northern France. Now the Reformation, right? It's up there. I guess I should ask the question. 95 theses, 1517. So you can see he's about eight years old, right? When um, the 95 theses were, were nailed and Wittenberg, and then you have 1519, Zwingli, the Swiss Reformation. Um, he was a precocious youth. His father intended him to be a priest. At 12, he was already employed by a bishop as a clerk. He is, uh, it sort of goes even, boys and girls, to the, the sermon I was preaching about when you become a man, right? Um, that's, uh, you can see how young he was, and he was doing great work. Uh, he goes to study law in Paris because his father realized a lawyer would make more money than a priest. And... Uh, in 1533, when persecution was breaking out, and it seems like at this time Calvin had Reformation sympathies, he experienced a sudden conversion in his words. Uh, and uh, you can find the best autobiographical note you can find on Calvin is his preface to the Psalms commentary that he wrote. Uh, so if you ever want to find out in his own words what uh, he has to say about himself, you can do it there. Uh, he flees to Basel. Uh, and then the affair of the placards, uh, Protestant placards denouncing the mass were being put up in, um, in France. 
And so uh, seeing a threat to France's stability, King Francis I who in France, who was at one point very sympathetic or at least tolerant of the Protestants, denounces them as anarchists. And so there's a martyrdom persecution, and that's why Calvin flees France. He writes the first edition of the Institutes in 1536. So now how many years is that after his conversion? Three, Three years after his conversion, right? Uh, and it was designed for lay people. It's one-fifth the size of our current edition we have here. So he ends up in Geneva. This is where most of us remember him, uh, his story, where it picks up 1536. Uh, William Farrell was the first reformer of Geneva. He's a fiery preacher. Calvin just stops in Geneva on his way uh, uh, from Basel to Strasbourg. Uh, Farrell re recognizes his gifts and tries to retain him to help reform Geneva. You know, he, he likely read the Institutes and wanted him there. Calvin wanted to write books, though. Um, and he didn't feel called as a pastor to sort of be in the midst of the fray. He just wanted to have a kind of a quiet life where he could write um, and, uh, and teach. And that was really where his heart was. And of course, you know what happens next. Uh, this is Farrell's encouragement to Calvin. Now said Farrell with that manner and voice which filled thousands with awe, I declare to you in the name of the almighty God, to you who only put forth your studies as a pretense, that if you will not help us to carry on this work of God, the curse of God will rest upon you for you will be seeking your own honor rather than that of Christ. And so he places an imprecation on him. And uh, Calvin's recollection of it was this, William Farrell kept me at Geneva, not so much as by advice and argument, as by a dreadful curse, as if God had laid his hand upon me from heaven to stop me. I'd intended to go into, uh, onto Strasbourg, the most direct road, however, was closed by the war. So this is God's providence. I decided to pass through Geneva briefly without spending more than one night in the town. And yet there he is. In 1538, though, Calvin and Farrell are banished from Geneva. The people weren't in favor of their reforms. And so he does go to Strasbourg and ministers to French refugees. He's happy there. This is actually some of his happiest days. Uh, he expands the Institutes in 1539 to 17 chapters. First edition of the Genevan Psalter is published. But when Calvin is gone, then the papacy kind of sees a... Uh, a, uh, an opening, so to speak, to kind of win Geneva back for the papacy. And so Cardinal uh, Sadoletto, he actually sends a very winsome appeal to the Senate and the people of Geneva, urging them to come back to the church. And this shows you that wolves can be very winsome. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, uh, and some of it is hidden by the Zoom thing here, but uh, the, the blasphemy here is amazing. This church hath regenerated us to God in Christ, speaking of the Roman Catholic Church. And this is what they thought, right? Um, we, we say there's a, in the middle there, for we do not arrogate to ourselves anything beyond the opinion and authority of the church. We do not make to display among the people of towering intellect or ingenuity or some new wisdom, on and on and on, right? This is, it's all about the church. It's not about the scripture. It's not about what Christ has said. The church has regenerated us. And now you can see why it is that the reformers saw the, uh, the papacy as antichrist. They're taking what God only can do and saying that we can do it. So it's interesting, right? This happens during the banishment of Calvin uh, outside of Geneva. So what would you think Calvin would do? You'd think he'd ignore this, wouldn't he? But he actually responds from exile. I'm not going to read his response, which is fantastic. But this is his reasoning for responding. For though I am for the present relieved of the charge of the Church of Geneva, that circumstance ought not to prevent me from embracing it with paternal affection. God, when he gave it to me in charge, having bound me to be faithful to it forever. You can see this is the heart of a pastor, right? It's like they kicked me out, but I'm still going to labor for their souls, right? And that's what I think you don't see many men uh, recognize about Calvin. He's not this cold, disinterested figure. He's actually a very deeply... Uh, pastoral man. He's a pastor at heart. Um, and you see this in Calvin, uh, a minister's heart, even in conflict. He was filled with graces and not just intellectual gifts. You, you might know this, what Calvin wrote to Bullinger uh, after Luther's hard words against the Reformed for our view on the supper. Tis a frequent saying with me that if Luther should even call me a devil, my veneration for him is notwithstanding so great that I shall ever acknowledge him to be an illustrious servant of God who, though he abounds in extraordinary virtues, is yet not without considerable imperfections. I think that's a wonderful way to see, you know, here is a, is a dear brother, a reformer, 
that he uh, really respects, but he doesn't, uh, he doesn't um, ignore his graces and he also doesn't uh, shy away from his faults, right? It's a wonderfully balanced way of dealing with people. And that's just the way Calvin was, I think. Well, domestic life. Um, in 1540, he marries Eilet, uh, who is a, a widow, and this is what he wanted in a woman. He was about 30 years old, and he finally felt like it was time to get married. Uh, he wanted a woman chaste, obliging, not fastidious, economical, patient, and careful for his health. His health was always very poor. Uh, and so Martin Bootser introduced her to Calvin. Uh, he took in her two children from her first husband as well. And sad to say, none of his children survived infancy with, that he had with uh, Idolette. And the Roman Catholics very cruelly said this was judgment on him for his heresies. Um, but Calvin said he was content to have spiritual children. And then in 1549, she dies, probably from tuberculosis, and he never marries again. This is what he had to say. Again, you, you don't often see his heart, but here it is. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life of one who, had it been so ordered, would not only have been willing, a willing sharer of my indigence, but even of my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. 1541, he returns to Geneva after being asked back by the city council, and they were alarmed by the Catholic uh, attempts to reassert control. He actually didn't want to come. He was happy in uh, Strasbourg, but felt responsible, as you read. Uh, he releases his ecclesiastical ordinances, Presbyterianism. Uh, it was adopted by Geneva. He builds on Bootser's work, implements the four offices there. Uh, everybody remembers Servetus, uh, who was burned at the stake, but he was an arch heretic, uh, denied the Trinity, and he was wanted by both papists and the reformed for teaching against it. And Calvin urged a less cruel death for the man, but he didn't have the power of the sword nor did he run Geneva. So that was that. In 1554, Knox comes to Geneva uh, and we already read that. The final edition of the Institutes in 1559, Knox goes to Scotland, 1560, Scott's first book of discipline. 1563, the Council of Trent concludes and Rome is confirmed in her heresies, anathematizes the gospel, and then in 1564, Calvin dies. He was 54 years old, so died very young. Beza, his successor, said he was so emaciated, it seemed that all that was left of him was spirit. Um, but even in the end, it's interesting, Beza said that he would wear out his scribes. He'd be in his bed, and he would you know, dictate, and he would just wear out his scribes, and the scribes would have to you know, take turns. Um, he died with very little worldly possessions. His will is in Beza's biography, which I put on Slack. A few hundred gold was all he had left for his uh, next of kin. His friends urged him to slow down as the final days drew near, but this is his words. These are his words. What would you have the Lord find me idle when he comes? I think that's a wonderful, wonderfully look at it. He requested to die in an unmarked grave. Now, if you've read the Institutes, why might that be? What's one of his famous quotes from the Institutes that might speak to this? Well, I'm not quoting it, but he didn't want it set up as a place for people to come and idolize, idolize him. Idolize him, right? Yeah, yeah idolizing. Uh, the human mind is, so to speak, a, a perpetual forge of idols, right? Institutes 111.8. Um, and so, yeah, he applied that to his own life. He didn't want to be celebrated. He would probably, he would probably hate it that men are called Calvinists today. Um, he would probably despise that greatly. Um, I'm sure Luther would feel the same way about Lutheranism. Um, I think the more you study him, he's probably the man most akin to the Apostle Paul, this side of the apostles that I have found. Um, just his, his zeal, his, his gifts, uh, his focus, um, and his heart for God's people. You almost read, you know, like that's when, you, you know, a lot of people have that same misconception about Paul that he's all heady. But, you know, you read about his love for the Philippians or any of the churches. And, he, and Calvin has that same kind of heart. All right. So I thought then we could look at what the world was like and why Calvin was used by God, uh, by Christ to stabilize his church. Um, and I don't think that you kind of realize this anymore, but the Reformation context was a very volatile time, right? The Roman Catholic Church was the church 
for hundreds of years, right? And for all of its evil, it was a stabilizing force for society. It essentially dictated what kings would do. It dictated what you would do in religion and, and in death and in life, in marriage and everything else, right? The Catholic church stabilized society. Now it was evil, but popes and bishops brought order of a sort. And it, the institutional church was a powerful force. But with the Reformation in these Reformation countries and lands, it was gone. So there's a huge vacuum here. And of course, you know what happens when there's a vacuum, right? These are hard times, typically. And the reformers, you know, following the example of the apostles, turned the world upside down. They rediscovered the word of God and the gospel. And the charges were coming against the reformers that they were upending the Christian religion, created anarchy. And at the same time, Satan rise, raises up radicals, right? Radical reformers to create disorder who wanted to completely undo everything. But Calvin wanted stability for God's people. And he of the reformers, um, I think, had the best temperament and gifts to do it. Like Luther was the tip of the spear, right? Really for men like Calvin, Bootser, and others to come along afterward. Calvin did not want to be a new pope. He abhorred the thought. He wrote against that idea, but he wanted to be a helper of the faith of Christ's sheep and to show them the mind of God from the Bible. And true biblical stability, not the stability that came from tyranny, like with Rome, but a lot had to be replaced, right? In a short amount of time too. And this is why you look at the man, he spent his life, you know, from the time of his conversion to 54 years of age where he dies, it's just spent on this. So what did the reformers have to replace from Rome? What are some of the things that they had to, to uh, replace that Rome had in place? Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. So worship in general, right? Worship from top to uh, top to bottom. Um, and so Luther didn't really tackle that so much. He tackled like, we ought not do what uh, the Bible forbids. That's as far as he went. But he didn't go any further than that. And Luther, of course, he had so much to deal with of his own um, that it, it's understandable. What else? So we got worship from corporate down to family level and personal level. What else had to be replaced? The okay. Not really replaced, but restored. Restored. Okay. Got the gospel itself. Authority of scripture. Yeah. And it's like when he ripped that away from his mind. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there are a lot of institutions like marriage and such that people had to be re retrained. And uh, what does the scripture actually say on that? It's very good. And uh, um, uh, I heard something from uh, Zoom. I didn't quite get that. Did somebody say something on Zoom as well? Yeah, it was Danny. He said the authority of scripture. Oh, the authority of scripture. Okay. Yeah. There's no more like what was the authority as far as the teaching of God's doctrine? or it wasn't really God's doctrine, but of doctrine under the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, could you, uh, if somebody has their mic unmuted. There you go. Ricky said the Pope. No, being the vicar of Christ. Okay, yeah. Who has authority in the church? So church government, very good. Um, okay. So yeah. Uh, salvation that kind of goes to the gospel as well. You know, how man is made right with God and who has the authority to remit sins, right? Cause that comes to the indulgence question. Um, very good. Okay. Restoration to like, like marriage and the family, but all in like the umbrella of Vocation. Vocation. Yeah. Yeah. That was something. Yeah. Like you said, Luther also was very deeply concerned with because um, the the Catholic church didn't see the ordinary man's vocation as worth anything. Really. If you, if you wanted to do something good for God, you had to become a priest or a monk or something. Yeah. Um, okay. So you guys have mentioned a lot of good stuff and a lot of this is, is stuff that we had talked about. So uh, church government, state, church, uh, here's another, here's one that we didn't really cover too much, state and church relationships, right? 
if the Pope doesn't have authority over the state, then if the church doesn't have authority over state, how does the state function? How does it interface with the church, right? Governments used to be, you know, at the uh, beck and call of the Pope, right? From the time Rome collapsed, right? The um, Rome, speaking of the state, collapsed. The Pope was in charge, essentially, uh, over civil government. So, you know, this is the whole issue with Henry VIII, right? And his marriages, um, you know, who gets to, who has power over the state. And so all of this has to be discovered. All this doctrine has to become, uh, has to come out of the Bible. And, uh, you know, you think of then all of that work that Calvin did addresses these questions and more. And that's one of the reasons why he was relentless in preaching, relentless in teaching. He would preach basically every day of the week, you know, just in order to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And I think in that, in his life's work, Calvin shows, again, the heart of Christ. Uh, I've always been taken by this, especially as I thought in coming into the ministry in Mark 6, 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion towards them because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And what does he do? He teaches them many things, right? Not just one thing, not just two things, many things. And so this is where, you know, Paul has a heart. I uh, didn't shun to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And in his prefatory address, which many of you read, that, that shows in his address to the king, right? That he had compassion on his fellow believers without shepherds. And so he began to teach. And uh, he, I think Christ used Calvin to fill Protestant churches with true uh, doctrine, piety as well, and practice so that the void left by Rome would be filled with Christ's truth from the scripture and not a new magisterium. Oh, okay. Maybe. Uh, uh, oh, okay. Sorry, we haven't uh, noticed all the text going on in the uh, in the chat here. Somebody alerted it to me. Let me pull this over. Very good, good stuff. All right, I'll see if I can juggle all these windows. All right, so let's uh, get into a little bit of uh, discussion um, on what Calvin's institutes are. Um, I'm just going to move some windows around so I can see it. So it is uh, institutio. Uh, it's an instruction or education. So it's designed as a compendium of Christian doctrine, but also an apology and confession of the faith in persecution to King Francis I. So that's important for us to understand. Here's uh, some of his reasons for writing. And if you've read the prefatory address, um, you it's long, obviously. And so I'm just going to give some of the excerpts here. My intention was only to furnish a kind of rudiments by which those who feel some interest in religion might be trained to true godliness. And I toiled at the task chiefly for the sake of my countrymen, the French, multitudes of whom I perceived to be hungering and thirsting after Christ, while very few seemed to have been duly imbued with even a slender knowledge of him. That this was the object which I had in view is apparent from the work itself which is written in a simple and elementary form adapted uh, for instruction. So you see that, that's again, that's that heart of Christ. I wanted to instruct my people, my countrymen, who didn't seem, you know, they were like children, couldn't tell their left hand from their right. And uh, this is his, his heart here. Um, and then this is where he's trying to intercede on behalf of Protestants. But when I perceived that the fury of certain bad men had risen to such a height near realm, but there was no place in it for sound doctrine. I thought it might be of service if I were in the same work, both to give instruction to my countrymen and also lay before your majesty a confession, that is a confession of faith, from which you may learn what the doctrine is that so inflames the rage of these madmen who are this day with fire and sword troubling your kingdom. For I fear not to declare that what I have here given may be regarded as a summary of the very doctrine which they vociferate, ought to be punished with confiscation, exile, imprisonment, and flames, as well as exterminated by land and sea. So what's he saying here to the king when it comes? So, um, yeah, what's he saying here to the king? I'll just put that before you all.
how is the Institutes meant to be a defense of the Reformed or Protestant faith, according to him here? Well, they're complaining about him and his reforms, uh -huh. but they're saying that that's that they're the ones that are following scripture. Uh -huh. But yet they're not. I mean, it's obvious they're not. So they don't, they're showing their ignorance of what the word actually says. Okay, yeah. Um, and, and I think linked with that is ignorance of what Protestants believe, right? Um, and so what he's, he's doing is he's saying, look, this is what we simply believe. None of the crazy stuff that our enemies say that we do believe or that we're for anarchy. You know, you're going to see that he's going to teach, you know, certain kind of subjection to authorities in, inside of the institutes. And so, you know, they, they are slandering us. Here's a defense. Here's a confession of what we actually do believe so that you can see that we're uh, there. That, that's they're the bad men. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so that's why I want to give a confession. That's why the reformed often gave confession, made confessions of faith. It's like this is what we believe. Uh, don't believe the the evil reports against us. Especially because at the same time that the reformers were uh, were reforming the church, right? You had the radical reformers, you had the radical Anabaptists, especially, you know, who are really causing mayhem and anarchy. And so there's no authority. And so the reformers are getting tarred with the same uh, brush, so to speak. So the first edition, and this just looks really, oh, somebody raised a, I don't know what that means. I don't use, Danny, did you have a question? No, I didn't. I'm sorry. I might have pressed it by accident. I'm oh, trying okay. to access the chat to see what uh, they're saying in there as well. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, so the first edition, it was only six chapters long. Uh, and it might be hard to read on that TV for some reason. Let me read it from here. Uh, concerning the law, concerning faith, on prayer. Concerning the sacraments, and this goes to something Felisa was saying, concerning the five other sacraments, which are not really sacraments, uh, concerning Christian liberty of the power of the church in the civil government. Now, this obviously has a lot to do with what he was saying to King Francis, right? Like, no, there is a, a legitimate power of civil government, but there's a legitimate power of the church. And how do these two come together? And so that's the first uh, edition of the Institutes there. Um the final fifth edition, won't go through all the, the um, in-between editions. Calvin really perfected it at this point. Four books now in 80 chapters. And it's a literary masterpiece. It really is if you studied it. Uh, Peter Bain, the free church historian, says the institutes are in all, save material form, a great religious poem as imaginative in general scheme and as sustained in emotional heat as paradise lost though, of course, not to be compared for beauty of language or picturesqueness of detail with Milton's poem. Calvin treats in four successive books of Christ the Creator, Christ the Redeemer, Christ the Inspirer, and Christ the King. If he had written in verse, avoided argumentative discussion, and called his work the Christiad, it would have been the most symmetrical epic in existence. It really is a beautiful work if you looked at it from a literary um, standpoint. Um, so in the fifth edition, his epistle to the reader uh, says, I may further observe that my object in this work has been so to prepare and train candidates for the sacred office, for the study of the sacred volume, that they may both have an easy introduction to it and be able to prosecute it with unfaltering step. For if I mistake not, I have given a summary of religion in all its parts. See, he, he wanted to be comprehensive and digested it in an order which will make it easy for anyone who rightly comprehends it to ascertain both what he ought chiefly to look for in scripture and also to what head he ought to refer whatever is contained in it. It is remarkably put together. Like you can find your way through it really well if you understand its structure and you can find him addressing things that you probably had no idea you needed to even think about. Um, and so the institutes uh, you can see here on the side column may be hard to read. Uh, it went from a rudimentary instruction manual in religion and godliness to something that could be used to prepare and train candidates for the ministry. But I would, my exhortation is don't see it as intimidating, but encouraging. That's what he said. It's in an order that will make it easy for anyone 
who rightly comprehends to ascertain what he chiefly looked for and on and on. We had talked about this at style is lucid brevity. You read it slowly and digest it. Calvin is actually very easy to grasp and very memorable as well. So I just encourage you that way. Some people, you know, think of the institutes and they think of this massive tome that is really hard, but it's actually one of the easier systematics to, to read. So it's actually on that point, very helpful to understand how he laid out the final edition. Um, it's according to the four heads of the Apostles' Creed. Christians used to memorize the creed, so that's a natural organization. What are the four heads, if you had to give, not recite the whole thing, but what are the four heads of doctrine? Not quite who God is. I believe in no, God the Father. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Creator. Yeah. So the the four. So I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. That's the first head, the Father. Second head is the Son, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and on and on. Uh, so God the Redeemer. Head three is the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And head four is the Church, the Holy Catholic Church. And that's how the Institutes are laid out: Book one, Book two, Book three, Book four. And it's a very easy way to understand his work. And it's beautiful and brilliant in so many ways, I think. Um, so if you, if you know that, then you know where to go for any head of doctrine, essentially, if you know the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and that is impossible to read on that screen. Um, but uh, I don't know if I can zoom in here. Yeah, okay. So I can at least try to zoom in. Um, the first book, uh, which is of God the Creator. Now, the other part of this is that he actually tells you in every book in the opening of it, the argument, as well as what the index is to it. And if you actually read the um, his sort of summary, you basically will learn the entirety of the book. And then basically everything else is detailed that fills it in. So I would encourage you in that to read the introduction to each book. So this is uh, this is his subtitle, The Knowledge of God and of Ourselves Mutually Connected. This is what he wrote. The first book treats of the knowledge of God, the creator. But as it is in the creation of man that the divine perfections are best displayed, so man also is made the subject of discourse. The book divides itself into two principal heads, former relating to knowledge of God, latter knowledge of man, and so on and on and on there. Now, some of you have already read this. So why is it important? I'll just ask the question. This is really for next week or next two weeks from now. Why is it important that Calvin believes you have to have a knowledge of yourself? as well, uh, before you can have a true knowledge of God. Okay. Well, why, can you, can you flesh that out just a bit? Well, because man, he's a creative being. Okay. God's a creative being. Uh, so you got to understand that fall. The man lost it. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, very good. And that I'm a sinner. Yeah, that's you mentioned that the fall, right? Before you can comprehend your need to know the true God, right? You have to understand something of yourself. Yeah, very good. Um, and so, uh, so then you can see, let me just zoom in here. So this is just his sort of index into the book. Um, you know, what kind of knowledge God requires, where knowledge is sought, not in man, because... Uh, on third place, what the character of God is. Fourth place, how impious it is to give a visible form to God because God is the creator. And so he's not a created being, right? All these doctrines flow. That's why he's so brilliant. It's like, you can't have idolatry because God is the creator, right? I mean, it's so obvious, you would think, but you can't have idols because God is not created. And so how can you have a created representation of it? It just is so basic, but he goes into that in some detail, of course because you're dealing with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, God is to be solely and holy worship. That's going to put away saints and veneration and everything else. Uh, and then the knowledge of man, um, the creation of the world, nature of God and man, and so on. So like just reading, if you just meditated right on, on those heads of doctrine, you would probably uh, really grasp the rest of the, the book very easily. Um, so that, I think, would be helpful to you as you study uh, the Institutes. Book two, the knowledge of God, the Redeemer in Christ. 
says, as first manifested to the fathers under the law, and therefore thereafter to us under the gospel. What's he doing there in that summary statement? Why is that so important? Old and New Testament, right? They both speak the same gospel, don't they? Um, and so here's his, his argument again. Oops, sorry. The first uh, part of the Apostles' Creed, knowledge of God, the creator being disposed of. We now come to the second part, which relates to the knowledge of God as redeemer in Christ. The occasion of redemption, the fall of redemption itself, um, and so on. Corruption of human nature, our need for a redeemer, essentially. Um, how he was manifest to the world, twofold under the law, in the Decalogue and elsewhere, um, under the gospel. What kind of person, the person of Christ, why he was sent into the world, or how he fulfilled the office of our Redeemer. And so that's book two. And then book three is the, so this is the Holy Spirit, the mode of obtaining the grace of Christ, the benefits it confers, and the effects resulting from it. So. This is the third part of the creed, right? How you procure the mode of uh, 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 of procuring the grace of Christ, benefits we derive, and the effects which follow from it, or the, the operations of the Holy Spirit in regard to our salvation. What are some of the heads of doctrine you might think of here? Regeneration, effectual calling, right? So again, if you know the 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 way it's laid out, it's like if I want to know about effectual calling, I'll go to book three. Very easy to uh, use his work that way. That's why just sort of the, the brilliance in its layout is is really wonderful. That's um, oh, interesting. Uh, so seven principal heads, the doctrine of faith, and uh, on it goes. And then of the Holy Catholic Church, not meaning the Roman Church, but the true church as first manifested the fathers under the law and therefore uh, for us under the gospel. So you have here, um, actually, I think that's, that's a copy paste. Uh, the former exposition, uh, now it's God, the sanctifier. So the Holy ghost uh, was in the, the last chapter. Now it's the church and the communion of the saints. Um, so the external means. So what is the means by which uh, the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us? Right? And it's going to be the church is the ordinary means. And so you've got the sacraments here of the church. And he actually has civil government here as well. Um, magistrates, laws, and people. All right. So that's kind of a, an overview of the work. Next time when we get together, I would say read book one, chapter one. There are three sections to it, but given, and this will be much more of a discussion time next time around. Um, it could be that we just discuss section one, the sum of true wisdom, the knowledge of God and of ourselves, effects of the latter. So what happens when you have a true knowledge of ourselves and of God? Uh, what does that produce in us? All right. So I think that's good for our, our time, pre-made uh, time. That's about an hour. Uh, any questions? Anything else that kind of came up from this? Jacob, yeah. Jacob. Yeah, I'm gonna ask about him. How did that affect what Calvin was doing? Was he attacked at all? Or he was passed. He was after Calvin's time. What about the French Huguenots? Were they also after Calvin? Um, like it was during his lifetime. Um, okay. Saint Bartholomew's massacre, I think, was. Can't remember the year off the head. I want to say it's at the latter part of his life. Because um, okay, if you if you look at um, you know you opened the question why we should listen to Calvin mm. and um, if you look uh, I, I don't have a quotation but I've heard it said by more than one person that Calvin's work in the institutes it also had a an impact on the quality of the French language that you know it, it set a bar for um for academics in, in a certain way but um you know with the the massacre and then ultimately with the the huguenots fleeing france and france has turned its back on the reformation mm -hmm. nowadays if you mm -hmm. look where france stands it's the most secular mm -hmm. nation and um 
you know, overrun by Islam almost. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that, so you open with a question why we should listen. Well, this is what happens when you don't mm-hmm. listen and you turn your back on it. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, uh, I, I know what your citation of, um, or your, what you're saying about the French language being impacted. Uh, my understanding is that might not have been the Institute's proper because it was written in Latin um, and then translated into Fran- French. Um, but uh, he had several works in French uh, that I think you're right about. They do attribute a lot to Calvin and his uh, use of the French language. Um, in a lot of ways, modern French is indebted to him. At least that's what I've read as well. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm trying to look at my, my history timeline here to see if I have the Huguenot. I've seen a book on Huguenots that was recommended by Andrew Myers. Myers, and I almost brought it, and I thought, no, that'll be a distraction. I couldn't just Let's see, that was the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, 1572, so a little bit after his time. But uh, certainly he had a huge impact on the, uh, on the Huguenots. Um, yeah, yeah, but, his, but to all of your points, his influence across the world is felt um, to this day, like very few men, um, especially in the church, have had. Um, anything uh, for, from those of you who have read the Institutes, anything that has ever really stuck out to you or things that you've really profited from? Actually, who here has read um, all the Institutes? Uh, for, for April and I, uh, book three, I think it is chapter uh, seven, um, Self-Denial, was, uh, mm. I guess you could say, really, really changing for us. Okay, wonderful. Is there anything in particular there that? Um, yeah, seeing, seeing um, people in the image of God, I think it really, um, <laughs> it made it easy to love those who are unlovable. Mm. Um, to realize that even if the heathen is made in the image of God and that we're to see that, it, it helps us change our mood and our, um, our actions towards those outside of the household of God to show love. And um, also just to see them that they're fallen, but still in the image of God uh, was really um, beneficial for us and changed, changed my attitude shamefully, um, you know, on maybe how I felt towards um, people who you would think would never be saved <laughs> mm. to now understanding that, you know what, we, we need to show them love um, because they're made in the image of God, regardless of uh, where they're at. Yeah, that's very good. Excellent. Anything else? Anybody has a gleaned from Calvin Institutes? Who who has read a, a portion of it or you know any significant portion of it? Okay. Okay. Well, hopefully it'll be it'll be an encouragement to you all. Um, I know. Because it it's so it's so beautiful to see this section right here. That I just read that I feel sated and I move on. Yeah. Here, and I just get distracted by other yeah, things. Yeah. So, like, to help me stay the course and read more than I normally would at a time. That's great. Yeah. So, yeah. That's been the be- uh, biggest benefit for groups like this for me has been to actually commit myself to getting through a work. Because um, otherwise, yeah, I'll, I might lose focus. Um, Andrew said, read the first half and didn't finish. Um, Tim Glazer says, I've read the whole thing, but then I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, uh, I didn't have anything else unless there was anything else questions wise or or things that we can uh, think about for next time. Read book one chapter one and uh and then we'll definitely talk about the first section and see how far we get 
All right. Well, thank you all for joining us on Zoom. Um, we can fellowship for a while here if anybody wants to stick around here, but I'll be. Oh. Yeah, Ricky especially must read the whole thing. Thank um, you. I would like I would like us to commit to that. We'll see what schedules are like, but we'll keep going as far as we can, you know, until the Lord takes us away. Because I have a feeling that's that's what it's going to be like. No, this is a yeah. This is this is kind of a marathon. Four years? I can't get through Luke that fast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Ricky, I, I would just say, yeah, read, read, read ahead and try to get through the whole thing. We'll like to, I, I mean, it'd be my desire that this group would get through it together because I think that's also a wonderful bonding experience too, you know, to get through something like this. Um, it's almost like being brothers and sisters in arms. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully the group will grow and, and, yeah. and merge and meld with others. So, all right. Might have to take a vote on that. <laughs> See what the tribe has to say. We'll be congregational in that. All right. Saying bye to Zoom land. Bye. 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 Bye, everybody. Bye.